calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the CFA Institute Take 15 series. Today's topic is value investing. I'm Heather Packard, Director of Content and Product Development at CFA Institute, and I'm joined today by Scott Black. Scott is the founder and president of Delphi Management Incorporated. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Heather. So Scott, how do you define value when you're picking stocks? We are absolute value players. And essentially, we try to buy good businesses. It's what Warren Buffett talked to John Train and the Money Masters even before I was in the business in 1980. The idea is to buy companies that have high returns on equity, generate free cash, that have solid balance sheets, and you buy them at absolutely low values of P-E ratio or liquidating value. Doesn't matter whether the market's going up, down, or sideways, you stick with buying good businesses at a cheap price. And you talked a little bit about um, <clears throat> Warren Buffett, and I know your topic of the conference uh, session today is about Graham and Dodd, and your your um, you know talk about being a Graham and Dodd disciple. How does that manifest itself in your investment process? Is it more the spirit versus the letter in terms of? Well, it's not exactly the letter in today's mm -hmm. world. You understand sure. when Benjamin Graham rent the Intelligent Investor and when Graham and Dodd did the book in the 1940s, we had more of an industrial economy. So you could find many companies selling below book value and even companies selling below networking capital, which mm -hmm. doesn't exist. You know, today, the S&P 500 is probably 2.7 times book. And a lot of the economy is driven by tech companies and service companies. Mm -hmm. But what we do is look for the margin of safety. Mm -hmm. Same is Ben Graham. Mm -hmm. In other words, don't pay up. For the best company in the world with consistent earnings, we don't pay more than a high 12 multiple, even if it's a 15, 20% grower. If it's a mundane business, energy, manufacturing, either buy it close to book value, or if there are metrics for a business, whether it's real estate or energy, we buy at a discount to the reserves, we buy at a high internal rate of return on a REIT, whereas trophy properties may have a 45 or 5% implicit return. We're still buying companies with 7.5%, 8% implicit cap rates. It's, it's that. We also do active management. And similar to the intelligent investor, Ben Graham said it's very hard to forecast more than one or two years out. Mm -hmm. And when we do earnings pro, pro formas, that's what we do. One or two years out. We look back at the history of the company and we do from a strategic standpoint try to find out what the secular growth rates are three to five years out because if you remember in Graham and Dodd they look at five-year fundamental earning power mm -hmm. as a bogey. So we keep to the spirit but in terms of valuation things have changed a little mm -hmm. bit. 
When you talk to company management, uh, what techniques do you use to get through the spin? In other words, how do you get them to tell you what you're looking to hear? Okay. The first thing is we're much different than most analysts, either buy side or sell side, because I always tell them there's going to be no FD questions. I don't care what the next quarter looks like. I'm not here to predict whether a company makes 26 cents or 27 cents the game, the numbers. That's absolute idiocy. We're interested to know how you run your business. And so we ask them questions. You know, you know, what's the optimal debt equity ratio for your firm? If you had a steady state model for an income statement, tell me what the gross margin, the SG&A, the operating margins, where are the economies of scale in the business? Mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to understand how they run that business as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, a mathematical solution for the next quarter. Mm -hmm. And have you found um, that there are any particular management styles at companies that make for a better investment? The thing I think that does best is when you have a company where the founder runs the company and he doesn't rape the shareholders, <laughs> where you have Hydric and Struggles and Corn Ferry putting people in and they have the system, it's, you know, it's like uh, all kids are above equal in Lake Wobegon. You have many mediocre CEOs and they're getting paid, remunerated relative to other mediocre ones. They have substandard returns on equity year in, year out, and everybody thinks he's got the right to walk with a $100 million plus pay package. We own many companies where the founders of the second generation own the company. They don't overpay themselves, and they have a vested interest parry pass sue with you that the stock goes up. And what makes your investing style unique or different from others? Warren Buffett several years ago in one of his annual reports talked about the dichotomy of growth versus value. He says it's fraudulent. What you want to do is to buy growth companies at value prices. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. I'm not going to name names of other money managers, but there are some that just buy low price to book value based on farmer French. Doesn't matter if they earn 8% on, on equity and 6% on total capital. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. The other thing that's different is before I became a money manager, I worked in real businesses. Mm -hmm. I started out after Harvard Business School at Xerox Latin American Group where I did financial planning and built the reporting systems. Mm -hmm. I did capital budgeting. Then I went to Seagram mm -hmm. where I was the treasurer for Latin America and negotiated loans and did planning and built accounting systems. And ultimately I went to Merrill Lynch in the management end. And I did a functional cost model for their products, for example, listed equity, whether you know, institutions, etc. And so I, I have a fundamental knowledge of businesses. What I think that I bring to the table and I give to my analysts who work for me is an understanding of what are the levers for success in a business. Most people look at it and they say, it's a good story. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, I'm not interested in a story. If you're interested in a story, buy from Amazon. If you're interested in buying a business, come to Delphi. Mm -hmm. What do you think the future holds for active management and what do you see in terms of career potentials for young professionals looking to get into the business? Well, <clears throat> I'm a big believer that the only way you beat the market over time is with deep value and it's been proven over and over again. For people who want to make a career, I think you can do very well, but you have to stick to the principles. Charlie Munger has a great quote about value investing. You grow rich slowly. If there's one piece of advice that you could offer to young uh, aspiring professionals, what would you give them? Well, the first thing is you have to be intellectually interested in companies. Mm -hmm. Because if it's just tedium or just trying to make fast money for yourself, you're not going to be good at it. 
I really love stocks. I, and even though you know, I've been at this a long time, I still look for companies nobody ever heard of. I probably know more over-the-counter and supplementary stocks than the average person, so do my analysts. You have to be intellectually curious. The second thing is don't be lazy. You know, you can say, okay, in this market, small cap stocks are 21 times earnings, the S&P is 17 times. It's impossible. Well, maybe impossible in the bigger names, but it's not impossible if you dig hard. And so you have to continue to work hard. And the other thing I always stress is personal integrity with my employees. It's most important. Don't try to cut corners. It's not on inside information. You know, don't bend the rules. Just, you know, stay away from the crowd, independently think and execute the strategy. But I think there is a future for people who want to stay on the value side. You're known as an avid art collector as well, and I wonder what you think about the art prices these days and whether we're potentially entering bubble territory. Well, you have to segregate the market. There are two areas that are nosebleed. We almost have to be worth a half a billion or more to participate. Mm -hmm. the, the one market where I've participated since 1985 is the Impressionist in modern. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a couple things there. Firstly, there's a dwindling supply of good 19th century paintings. They're not making more Monet's, Renoir's, and Cezanne's, and a lot of them have been you know, in museums, or they've been taken off the market by people like me who've collected for a while. The second thing is in the 20th century, you know, the certain good periods, like the Picassos from 1901 to 1939, those are drying up. So you have an inelastic supply but you have new demand. And a lot of people are buying, not because they're art lovers, but because cognitive dissonance. They want to be members of the firm. So it goes to hedge fund buyers, mm -hmm. private equity, Russian oligarchs, and Chinese. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing is people who I've known for years who have been solid collectors that are really knowledgeable about art mm -hmm. are priced out of the market. Mm -hmm. There are occasionally opportunities. For example, in the last couple of years, at Sotheby's in the evening sale, two years ago, I bought a Max Ernst. I bought another Max Ernst last year, and I was able to buy another Degas drawing this year. So there's still some opportunities, but unless you're super wealthy, you're nobody's going to be able to buy Monet's or Cezanne's or Picasso's. Now, let's talk about the contemporary. There's plenty of supply, and we can go back to the early ones that are important, like, uh, you know, uh, I would say, Roy Lichtenstein, Jasper Johns, Rauschenberg, the Kooning, those prices are very high. Again, unless you have lots of money, you can't compete. You saw Andy Warhol went for over 50 million, Francis Bacon for 114 million. I mean, you can endow a medical school for these prices. I, I do think that there's more ego with a, a trading mentality of private equity managers and hedge funds managers in that market than there is even in the one on, you know, the impressions. Now, there are great opportunities elsewhere. Firstly, you have to like what you buy. I never bought as an investment. I've never sold a painting. But if you like old masters, whether it's Spanish or it's Italian, French, there are some very good opportunities. There are great paintings by really good people at reasonable prices. You can buy something like a Tintoretto at a reasonable price, a Jacopo Ribeiro, Giuseppe di Ribeiro. I don't think you're going to be able to buy a Titian. You may not be able to buy Poussin, but of the you know near the top tier, you can buy very good paintings at reasonable prices. But it depends whether you like that or not. Thank so, you again for joining us today, Scott. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the CFA Institute Take 15 series. To view other episodes and more content, please visit us at www.cfainstitute.org.
Copyright 2014 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.